0: Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming
1: up... The challenge has often come from this idea that you simply replicate a model. The first petrol filling station was set up in 1914, you know. We've been going at this for over 100 years, so of course that whole process has evolved and that's very much in our minds.
0: Roads are ever-evolving parts of the public realm, from pedestrians to horses to personal and public vehicles... Our roadways have moulded to accommodate new transport systems for centuries. So how does the age of technology influence our streetscape? Today we look at how electric vehicles are affecting road design, explore how AI can improve road signage, and investigate how one of Europe's most car-dependent countries is working to pare back motor vehicle use. All that and much, much more ahead in the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. One of the biggest changes to the transport landscape from the past decade has been the proliferation of electric vehicles. As the number of EVs on our roads has grown, considerations need to be made in regards to infrastructure design. Electric cars, in comparison to their gas-powered counterparts, have many different demands on the built environment. Hydroc is an engineering, energy and sustainability consultancy based in the UK. And as such, needs to have answers on how a future that is fossil fuel free affects the built environment. I was recently joined by Chris Bowie-Hill, Director of Innovation Delivery at Hydrog, to discuss this topic. And I began by asking Chris if the increased weight of electric vehicles is a big concern for existing infrastructure such as bridges and car parks. The
1: challenge arises when you take what we have now, And simply just try and go, okay, internal combustion engines, so petrol, diesel cars, and then just replace them with an EV. There are additional challenges that we need to think about. So, for instance, car parks. Car parks are strong. They're plenty strong enough, but there are some natural balancing mechanisms that happen here. So, from a fire perspective, we need to space the cars out more. And then once you take that extra weight, but you're spacing it out more in the car park, actually it starts to kind of self-balance. You mentioned bridges well you've got to be really careful when you're designing a bridge you know you you don't want to find out on a really snowy really windy day that actually a load of lorries get stuck on that bridge and so that's kind of how they're designed is with layers and layers of factors of safety and all for good reason so actually once you put the extra evs onto that it actually just doesn't really make that much difference so i think it's almost a bit of a a moot point in lots
2: of ways on the spacing issue then batteries in some instances have caught fire is that why the spacing issue becomes more pertinent when you have evs i think this is a really interesting point and it plays to so
1: many of the other challenges that evs face and so much of it's about perception so in terms of that fire point you know If you look at the numbers, and I have to admit, there aren't a huge number of studies on this, but in the US, an insurance company has done quite a comprehensive survey of how many fires are they registered for hybrids, how many fires for internal combustion engines that covers petrol and diesel, and then how many for EV. So they work out per 100,000 cars, how many incidents of these you get. Now, hybrids, they actually come out the worst. They're like 3,500 fires per 100,000 vehicles, then you look at the internal combustion engines, they're like one and a half thousand, so that's like 2,000 less. Would you hazard a guess to the electric vehicles? Where would you put that?
2: I wouldn't have thought it was that much higher than the hybrid, so let's say 3,000. 25. Oh my gosh. So how does that make you feel? <laughs> so why, why do people bother spacing them out at all then?
1: Again, because we've had this perception. You know, there is definitely
2: this fear of, fear of new. And
1: we've had this thing for a while of, oh, do you know, When a battery goes on fire, you can't put it out. You have this thing called thermal runaway and it's really frightening and it just runs away and you just have to let the thing burn. But actually when you start to look in, you know, we're at the start of the journey on this. We've got lots of new challenges and it is that term new. Over in Sweden, the beginning of this year, they started looking at lithium batteries and saying, right, we've got a bunch of lithium batteries here. We've got a load of fire experts. Let's see if we get thermal runaway and we set these things on fire, how quickly we can put one out. Previously, it's taken things like you know 25,000 gallons of water, and it takes an age. They can now get it down to four minutes and a bathtub's worth of water. So this is a significant kind of progression in terms of how we can manage those fires and, and the background to that is they let one run for 15 minutes so if that's the call-out time to your car park you know there's been thermal runaway. right we need to get the team out there four minutes we have the thing put out that's not so scary in my mind.
2: Now one of the reasons there's been some resistance to the rollout of EVs is because there's a feeling that the car sales while clipping ahead at a reasonable pace the infrastructure has not kept up and that in many areas of cities you have a paucity of ev charging points i know that you've looked at this as a, a company and the need for some equity in in their distribution what's preventing that and what kind of solutions have you come up for
1: the challenge has often come from this idea that you simply you replicate a model I was reading earlier today that the first petrol filling station was set up in 1914. You know, we've been going at this for over 100 years. So, of course, that whole process has has evolved and that's very much in our minds. Where we've kind of gone with this is initially we said, right, we need all of these charging points. And early on, the charge point operators felt there was a bit of a gold rush. And they went, right, okay, this is going to be the next gold. We need to go big. We need to invest. We need to get charging points everywhere so that all of these cars can charge. So they went on this mission and they rolled out charging points left, right, and center. And then people started plugging into them and just realized that they just weren't powerful enough. They were the equivalent of like, they were seven kilowatt charging points. So to put that in perspective, that's like a home charging point. That's a what we would call graze and guzzle. So overnight, you plug your car in eight hours. It grazes overnight. It's fully charged and off you go. They were putting those around town. Now, if you're nipping to a central convenience store, a metro type convenience store and you drive up there and planning has told you now that you're building one of these things, you must put in a charging point. So you put a seven kilowatt charging point into ticker box. When you turn up and you plug in it, And then you nip into your store and you buy some bread and some milk and you nip back out. I mean, what have you done to the the charge? You've achieved nothing. And so that's what was kind of happening early doors is people were putting all of these charging points that just weren't really fit for purpose. And the consequence of that is it set people up to feel like, you know, the system, it just doesn't really work. But as we gather the data, as we start to educate the charge point operators and they start to realise economically what does and
2: doesn't work, the whole picture starts to change. I know that in your report that one of the things you identified was that there was actually quite a few places where charge stations could be built, especially for overnight charging, hospital, car parks, school, car parks. Actually, there are spaces often available for charging where people in a local community could leave their car to charge and they wouldn't have to kind of run a cable from their house or hope that nobody is parked in front of their a house of an evening so they could run the cable out. I know you think about policy. Is this something you're trying to... Get into the system so the planning authorities, councils, even government begins to think about this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a long way to go on this policy. As I mentioned just a moment ago, a lot of local plans will say you put in a convenience store, you need to put charging point outside, but there's no real guidance on what that charging point should be. And you have to get these points right. Otherwise, it just turns people against it, I guess. Coming back to that kind of earlier point about the equitable distribution of charging points, it is a very, very interesting point how do you manage this because in terms of the charge point operators they have naturally gone to where the demand has been and the demand has been where the evs are and the early uptake and that's typically more affluent more wealthy areas now over time what we're going to see is we're going to see more family type vehicles i call them like right the Citroën Picasso of the world, you know, something that's a bit more functional for everyday life, a bit more modest than the top end Teslas. And as they start to come through, we are going to need that distribution of charging points. Now, if you can't charge on your own drive and you have to go down the road to leave your car overnight, you're now not buying the electricity from your meter. You have to buy the electricity from a charge point operator. And of course, they want to put a markup on it. So now we're in this situation where if you're in a disadvantaged position and can't provide your own electricity to the car, you're you're now being penalised. So the way we see this is that this is where we need local authority and government intervention to consider this a little bit how you consider bus routes from a transport planning perspective. Not all Bus routes are as profitable as each other. So, how do you start to manage that? Because, you know, from a, a market centric perspective, what would happen is all of the bus routes that didn't make any money, they just die off. And all those that did make money, they would prosper and grow. But of course, that's not equitable. And there is the danger that that starts to happen in terms of EV. So, if you take that bus model, also start to look at things like bus passes. How might you make that work in terms of EV passes? And how in terms of getting a bus operator to run bus networks and saying, well, look, that one isn't as profitable, but everyone has a right to transport. So you start to work with the charge point operators and say, right, this area is wealthy and That's great. That works for you. This area isn't so wealthy, and so you're not inclined to go there, but you must. and You need to balance how you charge one end to the other, and then we can start to provide incentive rates. You know, maybe it's key worker, maybe it's your own benefits, but in terms of you having a card whereby you can plug in and you get discount rates, and all of that needs to start to be factored into the charge point
0: mechanism. Chris Bowie-Hill from Hydroc there, and thank you for joining me. The rise of AI has had varied reactions from the industries it's impacted. In the world of transport and infrastructure, autonomous vehicle use has had mixed reviews, but there are ways AI can be employed to improve our roads without rousing concern for driverless disasters. The Swedish company Universes reverse-engineers the autonomous car, using the images they capture of roads to instead report back on how best to improve design and maintenance. Andy Jones recently caught up with the CEO of Universes, Jonathan Selby, and sent us this report.
3: It is a familiar plea from drivers the world over. When will those in charge do something about these potholes? Or that tree branch hanging dangerously into the road? And what about that lethal bend in town where you have to take your life in your hands every time you pass it? Oh, and I'm sure that speed limit sign is completely in the wrong place. Don't these councils have eyes? Well, right now, in several major European cities, councils are finally putting eyes on cars. Stockholm is just one of these cities where every taxi is now fitted with an AI camera which can help authorities see every pothole burst pipe or overhanging tree just as quickly as you do logging its exact location and the nature of the issue it is causing that's right the very second your front wheel crunches through a crater sized hole in the road The hazard is spotted, a picture is taken and forwarded on to the relevant department. The AI can assess accurately how deep, wide and how problematic the hole is. Then AI technology at the council end flags up the most serious cases for instant human intervention. The technology is provided by Stockholm based company Universes and while it was launched there. It is already operational in Italy, Netherlands and London, where even the iconic black cab drivers are being fitted up to use it. The technology essentially works by reverse engineering the autonomous car. Driverless vehicles work by taking endless images and data points to navigate changing road events. But universes, instead of simply gathering this for the car's use, apply these visual reports to a greater public purpose, sending data back to the authorities to improve life for road users, all in real time. And, says universes, the technology is not only extremely simple and cheap to use, but it's spotting all sorts of things.
4: My name is Jonathan Selby. I'm the CEO at Universes. Today, on the streets of Stockholm, we're using computer vision to help harvest data about the city. And this is where we work with the largest taxi fleet in Stockholm, Taxi Stockholm and other vehicles. Today, what we do is we retrofit cameras to these vehicles. It's actually just A smartphone. Uh, It's the same device that you carry around in your pocket. It's got a fantastic camera, a fantastic processor, and actually, of course, a fantastic data link. And we can take the computer vision software that we originally wrote for the gaming space and then adapted for the autonomous drive space, squeeze it down to run on that smartphone, the camera pointing forward from a taxi as it drives through Stockholm, and we can extract useful pieces of information from the images as that taxi drives through the streets. Uh, So we can pick out where there's a pothole in the road, Or we can pick out where a traffic sign is and detect if that traffic sign is actually correct or not. Uh, We can detect if there's a roadwork on the street and then detect whether that roadwork is actually started on time or finished on time. One of the features we can detect actually quite easily because is a traffic sign. Traffic signs are designed to be visible to you and I as human beings. And so that means it's quite easy for us to pick up in the image. But once we've detected that sign, we can then go to the next level to say, should that sign be there in the first place? Is it correct? And also, is that sign fit for purpose? Is there a tree growing across it? Is the sign faded? Is it bent and leaning over? And so we're able to report back on all of that. And I think one of the findings of us collecting data, certainly around the Stockholm area, is that many of the speed signs are actually detected as incorrect So they're displaying a 50 kilometer an hour speed limit, when actually the speed limit on the road is, say, 70. Turns out there are about 3 million signs uh, in Stockholm. And we we analysed their operational procedures and estimated that it costs between 5 and 10 euros per sign to check these. And also looked at the timescales it takes to do them. And we worked out that it would cost them about 15 million euros and take them a couple of hundred years to go and check through
3: all of these signs. While it's helping stop mishaps everywhere else, Universe's own success is a series of happy accidents. The technology was originally designed almost 10 years ago to help VR gaming headsets track the gamer's own room, locating furniture and helping blend those items into the gaming experience. However, bigger players in that gaming space soon arrived and Universe's, suddenly finding themselves left at the side of the road, Switched into applying the same spatially aware object spotting technology to help road users. Selby himself was previously working in Formula One in research and development for Red Bull Racing, identifying new technology to help the car perform even better. Now he is applying universes to solve another driving bugbear.
4: So, one of the most exciting features we're starting work on now is using the cameras to detect available parking on-street parking and uh, so it's one of the biggest problems that uh, in most cities now providing the correct amount of on-street parking you don't want to provide too much because then all of the curbside is used is given over to the car and you don't want to provide too little because then your citizens are constantly driving around looking for parking so it's a very difficult balance to optimize the right amount of available parking so we're helping Stockholm to start looking at that and it's also data that we can then share with the everyday citizen Because actually that's a really big challenge for us as people trying to operate in the city. If we're driving somewhere, we want to be able to know where we can park so we can get to our destination in time.
3: Last year, European legislation ruled car manufacturers have to comply with something called Intelligent Speed Assist, where cars themselves have to know the speed limit of the roads they are on for 90% of each journey. But... If signs are inaccurate, this poses obvious problems for the vehicle, drivers, and other road users. But using their simulations, universes have discovered you can gather camera coverage that covers a third of a city the size of Stockholm in just a day, all by using just 10 taxis. That is a lot of road signs you can suddenly correct. Also applying the technology to something like an ambulance can also help understand the different issues of navigating the city at increased speed for a different purpose. The problem though with having many eyes on the road is it immediately puts you into conflict with data protection rules. This is something that Universes and its city partners are understandably proactive about.
4: It's quite important just at this stage to highlight the software that we write runs on the device itself. And the reason that's important is for something that's quite crucial is data privacy. Uh, So we are putting cameras out into the public environment here. We are fully GDPR compliant. We process all of these images on the device. We extract the useful information from the camera image and we only send that. We don't send lots of videos everywhere. When they get the alert that there's a pothole, They also want to have a picture of that pothole. And there's a chance that you might be standing next to the pothole or a person might be standing next to the pothole. We might get the license plate of the car in front. Uh, We run software over that image. We blur out faces, blur out license plates, so all personal data is removed.
3: In the future, universes could also be updated to track rapidly changing disaster-type situations, giving live updates of, say, a forest fire, a landslide, or another natural disaster, or by adding a new app to the technology to detect a new factor i.e. fire or smoke. And for any nervous road or admin workers currently working at governments, the technology doesn't necessarily mean the end of certain jobs.
4: This is technology which I argue is most certainly not taking away jobs. This is a technology which is giving superpowers to those that have these jobs. They are no longer having to do these mundane, frustrating, laborious, uh, mind-numbing tasks of going out and collecting the data. That is now being done for them by AI and the machines. It means they can then with that data focus on a much more high level interesting tasks that their knowledge and skills have been gathered for and really deploy those skills and then training and knowledge to solving the problems in the best possible way and that's where they should be focusing their time not on the mundane tasks of gathering data and that's why you have this great possibility to have the ai and the human collaborating
0: Jonathan Selby, CEO of Universe, is there, speaking with Andy Jones. Luxembourg, the small European country sandwiched between France, Belgium and Germany, has one of the highest rates of car ownership on the continent. The country is, however, eager to be rid of this less-than-desirable statistic and, as such, is undergoing a number of modern-day measures to try to bring private vehicle usage down. Monocle's correspondent in Luxembourg, Anique Weber, explains more.
5: Luxembourg is almost never in the international news. But in March 2020, the small European nation made big headlines by being the first country in the world to make all public transport free. What sounds like a great PR move was actually part of an extensive governance strategy to tackle a major national issue, the high level of car ownership. With two cars for every three people living in Luxembourg, the country has the highest car density in the EU. For the 660,000 Luxembourgers, plus the 200,000 or so cross-border commuters coming here to work from surrounding France, Germany and Belgium, This means hours-long traffic jams daily. By scrapping fares on all public transport, Luxembourg wants to motivate people to switch from using their personal vehicles to taking trains, buses and trams. And with it, the government has taken an important measure for decongesting Luxembourg's notoriously slow-moving streets. Now, some three years later, the fruits are beginning to show It's not just that you no longer have to pay before boarding a bus or a train, but it is now indeed possible to get to pretty much anywhere in the country by public transit, showing how heavily the government has invested in making the plan a reality. But that was not enough. Besides expanding its countrywide bus and train network and building a brand new tram system for the capital, the government worked hard to improve its cycling infrastructure. It's now not uncommon for residents from villages to cycle to their local train station before boarding one of the very regular train services to Luxembourg City, where the majority of people are working. In the capital, there are bike-sharing schemes and separate lanes, giving cyclists everything needed for commuting and getting around on two wheels. But with Luxembourg City being set across several valleys and hills, This demanded a bit of creativity from local town planners and architects. I spoke to Christian Bauer of the Luxembourgish architecture practice CBA Architects about what it took to make the historic Pont Adolphe fit for the 21st century. The late 19th century arched stone bridge connects the station district with the old town centre and sits high above a valley. Bauer gave me a deeper insight not only into the challenging topography of Luxembourg City, but also into one of the city's most iconic heritage-protected bridges, which his firm adapted to accommodate the new influx of cyclists and pedestrians. The solution his team came up with may look simple, a new four-metre-wide bridge with bike lanes and sidewalks, which hangs underneath the existing car bridge, but as Christian Bauer explained to me, it is in fact a feat of smart engineering.
6: The bridge itself became even more prestigious now because now you can go inside the bridge, which is very seldom that you can go in the valley of the bridge and you have wonderful views into the valleys. It's somewhat unique, this combination of very old and suddenly very light Our challenge was to make a very, also in design, to have it so light as possible. There are moments you don't even see that there is the bridge and that it's the best. In the night, you see it a little bit better and then it becomes very interesting. Voilà. So, but it had to be a very delicate construction.
5: Christian Bauer believes that cycling becomes more attractive if its infrastructure blends with the cityscape.
6: Cycling is not just something. You add to on the side of the road. Cycling should be even more interesting. It's good that cycling goes sometimes, for example, through a park. Cycling should have its specific places. So cycling becomes more and more interesting. Cycling should sometimes have a shortcut. It's not just about the distance, it should be about having a good experience. That cycling is not just added. It's another new layer. So cycling is more than just replacing the car. It's a new way of enhancing town and the public space. That's why I think this is one of the elements in the future. One should add more and more this specification.
5: Elsewhere, the capital has geared up for the future by welcoming a new funicular that connects the Pfaffenthal train station located in a valley to the hilltop finance district, the Kirchberg. The funicular journey takes barely a minute and the service runs every few minutes. Once arrived at the top, there's a new tram that brings users to the banking headquarters and EU institutions located on the Kirchberg. For the workers at these offices, a typical commute can include at least three modes of transport, train, funicular, tram whose timetables are seamlessly connected one to another. On a weekday morning, the Pfaffetal train station is bustling with people and activity. Students on their way to school, people in suits on their way to work. It's proof that the efforts to drive down car ownership have worked out pretty well for Luxembourg so far. And most importantly, that there's a cultural shift happening too among residents. In Christian Bauer's architecture practice, where 32 Luxembourgers and cross-border commuters are employed, colleagues commute in on all sorts of modes of transport. He thinks it's a blessing that Luxembourg is such an international place, because according to him, it's the foreigners who are more open to waving goodbye to the car.
6: We have many people coming from Germany or from France, from distance. so. I would say most come with trains, public transport. The mentality is changing because we have much more foreign people in Luxembourg. Luckily, luckily, Luxembourg, who was a little bit conservative, sometimes too conservative, we get the people coming from abroad. They are more open.
5: The car is now no longer necessarily the first mode of transport that springs to people's minds when it comes to getting from A to B. Of course, you can't change everyone's mindset overnight and there are still more vehicles on the road than there should be, but it's slowly but surely improving. Tram journeys, for example, have quadrupled in only four years. There are also more car-sharing schemes than ever to get people to move on from owning their own vehicles. Luxembourg hasn't quite reached its goals yet. The tram network, for example, is still being expanded to go all the way to the airport by the end of 2024. But the country is firmly on the road to a more car-free, carbon-neutral future.
0: My thanks there to Anique Weber. <music> Buses have long been considered the least desirable option when it comes to the transit landscape. By choosing affordability, riders have had to sacrifice comfort, efficiency and sleek design. Flixbus is a German sustainable mobility provider pouncing on the current push for public transport in the hopes of making coach travel, well, cool again. At the recent web summit in Lisbon, Carlos Rabella caught up with the company's CEO, Daniel Krauss. Let's listen in to their conversation.
7: Initially we picked something up which was not there in Germany for some years because Germany took invest in tracks and therefore it was not allowed to do inner-city bus transportation. That changed in 2013, we started. In many other countries there are buses even for centuries like in the US. But it's the question of how you do that. It has to be very easy. It has to be, you know, sustainable in terms of not only green, but also, you know, with a good offering. And ultimately it has to be affordable. And these kind of things we try to combine with the support of technology. And therefore, well, it turned out that we not only have a good load factor, which means a very good per head carbon dioxide footprint, but also with a load factor, you know, we have a cost advantage and therefore have an affordable offering. And these two things attracted the people and I guess it took maybe three to four years when we really l- realized that's a movement, more or less.
8: Often when uh, cities and authorities discuss investing in mass transportation, the priority seems to be the train, seems to be rail. But that conversation is changing and was really has shown how it can be a serious player in that conversation in providing a really great alternative. What do you say when faced with that debate?
7: It depends. The modes of transportation on the one hand and also, you know, the ways in alternative trains and how we are powered. In the future, it's more colorful. So you'll see battery-driven and you'll see hydrogen and you will need to have trains for long-distance services. And I love the decision the French government took in terms of uh, abandoning short-haul flights wherever high-speed train connection is live. And you need buses. Buses of us for, you know, mid term connections so between a super long term and public transportation because that's very affordable and very flexible and in public transportation well obviously uh, that's a mixture and you know whether it's a tram or uh, a subway whatever helps to bring people out of their individual cars because we really have to understand collective mode of transportation is the only way where the entire transportation industry can move the needle towards a greener planet.
8: Talk to me a bit about Flix's sustainability goals and how are you contributing to this transformation you were just describing?
7: So we published our ESG report recently and we said that uh, until the end 30s, so uh, latest 2030, we will convert our entire European fleet to become fully carbon neutral. That's something which is just important for us. We think due to our size and, and our brand, we have the responsibility to take a share of that. And therefore, we were very vocal about that and at the same time committed to the STPI goals because this is realistic. We don't do PR, but we really want to change something. And if we talk about things, we also act accordingly.
8: One of the things about the services of FlexBus, particularly is, you know, it's quite a sleek service, connecting cities. It provides that transportation in a really comfortable, modern way. And as you said, you know, operate in some cities that have had buses connection for ages. How are you convincing them to use your service instead? Is it about quality and price? How have you diverted users?
7: So sometimes I'm saying we made buses sexy again and essentially you really have to be close to the customer and understand their needs. First and foremost, the inventory, our product, so the possibilities where you can travel is most important. And then you have to look at value for money. So that's what I'm saying when I talk about affordability. And then we're also serious about the sustainable part. So people know that they can either compensate, but also you know know that uh, we're serious you know, about changing our fleet and doing good towards the planet. And these kind of arguments make us, I believe, attractive to customers. And that's kind of a almost a flywheel. You have to be very close to the customers, understanding the demand, and then provide your offer accordingly, and then usually people chose properly.
8: Now, you started in Germany, perhaps expectedly expanded in Europe because that provided the easiest city-to-city connection, but also now into the United States. And you mentioned that there on stage, but I will ask you again since we are not recording, about the change in those markets and how the approach to moving from Europe to an American market perhaps changed how you do things.
7: It's not only about Europe and the US, it's also about the other regions, whether it's Turkey or we're going to start in India or Latin America. You really have to make sure that the easiness and the economies of scale from a global platform is something we provide everywhere. We not only think global, we also have to act and adopt local. And that is the reason why we always have local teams and why we always adjust ourselves to the local necessities. And there, especially in the US, there is less public transportation. And there we are a real alternative to you know the individual cars, which some of them they didn't have before or not on a level we can provide in terms of being sleek.
8: And I guess uh, just uh, finally, uh, the last question I have for you is about, you know, if the nature of your job has redefined how you look at transport in general, you know, are you able now to be a passenger on a bus, on a train and not think about work and how you can bring that on to applying it to Flix and to the user experience? Are you able to enjoy traveling?
7: I always enjoy traveling and I still do. On the one and on the other hand, I'm kind of addicted to what I'm doing. I love the company and I love also the impact we have. Therefore, I keep on thinking always how we can, you know, do even better to the customer. And, well, I do that while I'm traveling in trains and buses, of course. But essentially, before I started the company, I used my personal car way more often. So meanwhile, I'm only on buses and trains. There's almost no reason for an individual car, because the freedom to choose to do nothing, look out of the window, read a book or think about work, you only have if you're free and being safely transported, like with Flix. Flixbus CEO Daniel Krauss there, speaking with Monocle's Carlotta
0: Rebello. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes direct to you every single week. The Urbanist is produced by Carlotta Rebello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Portishead Head with Rhodes. Thank you for listening, city lovers.
1: Stop!